Thank you for being here. Take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. So excited about the message that we have today. Excited about this week that is ahead. And there's a lot of exciting things happening over the next week. Um, Next Sunday, just a reminder, we have two services here at First Baptist. We have a nine o'clock service that is a mask required service. So everyone in that service is going to be required to wear a mask throughout the entire service. And so um, we hope that many of you that may be thinking about coming or would prefer that service would come at nine o'clock. And then at 1030, we'll have a worship service that is what we've been having, which is a mass recommended service. And uh, some of you have been a part of that life groups. Um, hopefully you've discussed by now if you're going to meet at what time that you're going to meet or not meet at all or whatever for Easter Sunday. And that you'll make sure that you coordinate all of that together. Excited about that. Also this week, one of the things that I love that we do here in Goodlettsville is the Goodlettsville Ministerial Alliance, which is a group of pastors from inside of Goodlettsville. We Part of our project is to help with the Goodlettsville Help Center that helps with benevolence cases throughout the city of Goodlettsville and people traveling through. And that's an awesome thing that we get to be a part of. But each year at Holy Week, we do a week of services starting at noon each day. Um, They go from noon to one. And every day this week, we rotate where they're going to be year to year. This week, every day, they're going to be at Goodnass Church um, right behind Publix on Loretta. From 12 to 1230 is the worship service. And then from 1230 to 1 is a free meal. Now, they do ask for donations for the Help Center if you can, but the meal is free. Churches provide that. A different pastor preaches each day, and it's always great. So I would encourage you to be a part of that. I also want to take just a moment of personal privilege and uh, make you aware of something. Um, we have somebody in our church that serves faithfully and has been serving faithfully for years and has stepped up in a multitude of roads, uh, roles when asked to do so. And today's a very special day for her. And so today is Anne Marie's birthday. And it is a milestone birthday. I am smart enough not to say what milestone it is, but it is a milestone birthday. And so would you join me in saying happy birthday or clapping? I guess we can clap. <laughs> happy birthday, Anne Marie. I would sing happy birthday for you, but I think the better gift is not. And so we're thankful for that. All right. Matthew chapter 21. We are at Palm Sunday. And when you get to Matthew chapter 21, you really are at the beginning of the end of the beginning. I'll break that down for you in a minute. All right. And I will say it incorrectly about 20 times in the rest of the sermon. Just want you to know that. All right. But we are officially, when you get to Palm Sunday in the book of Matthew, at the beginning of the end of the beginning. For the 20 chapters previous to this in the book of Matthew, and we don't have time to read all of them right now, God's people said. Right? That's a weird place to say amen, but it's true, right? Throughout the first 20 chapters, we have traveled all over with Jesus. We have seen him minister and be born in Bethlehem and be taken to Egypt and back to Nazareth and in Galilee and Capernaum and Gennesaret and even to Gentile places like Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea Philippi and Jericho and Judea. And eventually, when we get to chapter 21, he enters Jerusalem. It's the first time in the book of Matthew that we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. For three plus years, he has taught and healed and discussed and drawn people into himself. And he enters Jerusalem On this week, it's a special week. It's Passover week. Jewish Passover is being celebrated, was celebrated even now, yesterday. And we 
are at that moment, that week that led up to it and to the Passover celebration that was happening in the place of Jerusalem. Eight days, Sunday to Sunday, that would forever change the world. Jesus enters the city. (coughs) We'll talk in a minute about that, that he cleanses the temple. He challenges the religious leaders of his day. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He's arrested. He's tried. He's crucified. And he rises again from the grave, all in the span of eight days. This week is the climactic end to what was begun in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It is that moment when, as it was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, that the snake's head would be crushed by one of Adam and Eve's descendants. This week is the most climactic week of Jesus' life. And honestly, it's the most climactic and important week of all of humanity and creation so far. Over one-fourth of Matthew's gospel is given to these eight days. Over half or around half of John's gospel is given to these eight days. And Jesus, when we enter Matthew chapter 21, is at that point where he is ready to declare who he is. Now, throughout the book of Matthew and in several others, particularly Mark, there's the phrase, the Mark and secret, that Jesus, when he would heal somebody, when he would do a miraculous work, he would often tell people, don't tell anyone. In fact, just a few chapters before this, in Matthew chapter 9, he kind of warns people, it's a, it's a don't tell anyone, don't let anybody know what I've done. And yet at the end of chapter 20... Right before we start this passage, at the end of 20, he heals two people and he says nothing about them becoming secret followers. There's no warning. We just jump into 21 where Jesus is ready to assert himself as the Messiah that has come from God to save his people. And so it is like it has been building to this moment, building to this place, building to this time, building to this week. And with Palm Sunday, and particularly the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is announcing that he is the Messiah, the King that has come to rescue his people. It is the beginning of the end. But at the same time, when you step back, into the scope of history eternal, we realize that it is the beginning of the end of this particular portion of the story, but that it is just setting in motion what is still yet to come. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but in storytelling, in movies and novels and places where they care about the story arc of what is happening, they often talk about the three-act structure. That there is Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. Series of television shows that are written well often contemplate on the front end what is Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. How are we going to get there? And so as you can see, there is this building action. There's a beginning and an inciting incident and then some questioning and then a climax of Act 1 that leads to an obstacle, another obstacle, a big twist in the middle, another obstacle, disaster, a crisis, that moment when it doesn't look like there's any hope. And then at the last minute, there is a climax that leads to the wrap-up of everything. 
Now, this is true in regular stories, seen a lot uh, more recently in superhero stories that have become what cinema is about in some ways. It's also seen in romantic stories. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, right? And I know that there are tropes that play on all of that now. And Mac, in fact, now this has become so commonplace that movies get recognized when they don't follow this, right? Now, here's what's interesting about it. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, considered the greatest writer by many of the 20th century, said that every great story is simply a retelling of the story that God is writing. And when we think about the three-act structure of God's overall picture, this week is literally the climax of Act 1, where he is finishing the action that will lead to the action that comes. Now, for us a minute, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, that looks way down on the totem pole of where this moment is going to be, right? But let's not forget that Jesus' death and resurrection led to an error of time when God's kingdom has already come and is not yet here. And that at one point, when that sky splits open, Jesus is coming on a white horse to redeem his people and take us to be with him. And that is the ultimate climax of history. And we look forward to what is happening there. And so I want us to understand in the proper place of God's story, yes, this is the most important moment that has happened in the history of the universe so far in our understanding of time. And it is vitally important to what we do as a faith. And so in Matthew chapter 21, let's see how the beginning of the end of the beginning plays out. We're going to read 22 verses all together as a story form and then come back and talk about three things that we can take from it today. Starting in verse 1, it says, When they approached Jerusalem, that is, Jesus and his disciples, including these two men that have just been healed of blindness, and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he heard Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple. And he threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes, have you ever read, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. 
Then he left them, went out into the city to Bethany and spent the night there. And early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered them, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you receive whatever you ask in prayer. Jesus, preparing for this moment, gets his disciples aside and says, go find this cult. He tells them exactly where it is. They go, they find it. He rides into the city. And we have this beautiful picture. Palm leaves being laid on the ground. Palm leaves being waved. Clothes being laid as a red carpet, if you will, to welcome in the king that is to come, the Messiah that is there. Jesus immediately takes on a role of a prophet as he goes in and he wipes out the temple. The children praise him for it. The religious leaders are mad about it. And they finally come to a place where Jesus sees a tree that's not doing what it should do. And he curses it to wither. And they're like, wait a minute. That's not what I expect from the triumphal entry to talk about all that other stuff at the back end. Like, I like the palm trees, and I like the waving, and I like the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and I like the, this guy's awesome and our king. But it all ties together for us in understanding what it takes to follow Christ today. So I'll have three things for us today as we think about this passage of Scripture, as we walk through this passage of Scripture. Three things for us to remember in this passage. And the first thing is, the first responsibility of our life the first commitment that we must make, the first joy that we must possess is our ability to praise the king. I want to look for a few moments at Jesus as he is depicted and described in this passage, in what Luke tells us about what happened at the triumphal entry, and about the Old Testament passage that is the center of what is happening here. Because what is amazing is that in these verses that we just read, there are descriptions of Jesus that is breathtaking, that is awe-inspiring, and that can be life-transforming if we will understand truly what it means. So I just listed out, found this in research of places and looking, of what is described about Jesus in this passage and the one that is referenced from it. So I think we've got that list that we can put up on the screen here. So in this passage alone, and those that are tied to it, it reminds us that Jesus is defined and prophesied and righteous and our Savior and gentle and peaceful and global, messianic, compassionate, prophetic, holy, authoritative, and coming again. And so as he enters into the city, there is a lot of symbolism and understanding that we no longer have because we have not been steeped in the Jewish tradition and in the scriptures like the people that would have been lining the streets that day would have been. Like we all realize that there are certain things that we don't have to explain to each other. We just get it, right? There are all these things on YouTube or Facebook or whatever of you might be from the South if, or you might be from Tennessee if, or you might be. And it'll give you a list of things, and a lot of times you just like nod your head, yeah, 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 right? It's just stuff that you know because it's a part of who you are and how you've grown up. Um, 
this weekend on Netflix, there is a new Christian musical about summer camp. And almost all of the songs are songs redone from the mid to late 90s contemporary Christian music scene. I didn't have to get all the stuff in there. I just knew it, right? That's my life. That's Maybe it didn't for you, but that's how I grew up. That's what I did. Going to camp, sitting around a campfire, singing Awesome God. And there are things throughout that my girls are like, that's kind of cool. And I'm like, that's my life a number of years ago, right? Like, I don't want to talk about how far, but that's just I like that that nostalgic and all that stuff that is there. It's because that's how I grew up. That's what I know. And there are a lot of things that we miss from this story because we are just not as connected to the history and the lineage that the people on the streets would have been that day. And so, for instance, when we look at this, we see in the very first few verses that Jesus describes himself as divine. And you say, now, where's that, Pastor? Well, it's in verse 3 of chapter 21. Hopefully you've got your Bible. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. It won't be on the screen always. And he says, if anyone says anything to you. So he says, I'm going to send you, and then there's going to be a colt there. It's going to be tied up. And if you go, I want you to go and take the colt. Now, in our day, if somebody walked up and grabbed a car on the side of the street and began to drive it away that wasn't supposedly their car, what would we call that? That's stealing, right? And so when they say, he says to them, so if you go and you start untying the donkey and the owners or whoever is coming out going, what in the world are you doing? Or that's my, or what do you, that's not yours. What's going on? Or if someone asks questions about it, what does he say to tell them? The Lord needs it. Okay. Now there's some debate about this, but I believe this is a place where Jesus is taking the word Lord, which was the stand in Greek word for the biblical word Yahweh, the Lord, and applying it to himself. It's the first time in the book of Matthew that the word Lord is applied to Jesus. Now, it's used about lords. It's also multiple times, like the lords of this or the masters of this. But when it is used in this very specific way, it means the Lord, the one, the one that is divine. This is the only place in this passage where Jesus claims that he is on par with God. Remember at the end of that passage of Scripture, maybe as I was reading through it, you didn't catch quite this, but Jesus is there and he's healing people and the children are saying, blessed is he, Hosanna to the son of David. And he says, wait a minute, the religious leaders are like, don't you hear what they're saying? Don't you get what they're announcing? Because what they were saying, what they were announcing is, that's the Lord God Almighty. Don't you get that, Jesus? And Jesus is just like out of the mouths of babes. He is fully accepting that. The most important question that you can ever decipher in your life is who Jesus is. Now, let me just tell you something real quick. Just because you decide him to be something does not mean that makes him who he is. He is who he is. But you must come to that place where you accept the reality that Jesus is God incarnate. He is equal to and on the same footing as God the Father and God the Spirit. 
He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And because of that, the one riding on the donkey that day had power over sin and death. He is the divine King. He is the one that has been prophesied about. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that he came riding on that donkey and they said that it was to fulfill what was happening in the prophet. And then it gives you the quote from the prophet. And now maybe, maybe somebody in here, or maybe somebody that studied this, but my guess is most of you when you read that don't immediately go, oh yeah, that's Zechariah chapter 9. Like immediately you don't like, oh yeah, I got that. That's what's going on. But that is Zechariah chapter 9. In fact, it's Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And it's from a prophet who is writing to a group of people that had come back from exile. And as they're coming back from exile, what happens is he says they're there rebuilding, they're recharging, they're reestablishing God's kingdom. They're trying to find a hope in the midst of that. And what is written there gives them hope. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion was the name of Jerusalem. Zion was the highest point in Jerusalem. And so oftentimes it was just a metaphor for Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. And then comes the twist. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as he rides in and they see Jesus riding on the donkey. Now there would have been whispers about him. His followers would have been waiting for him to declare who he is. His disciples have seen him do more than any other human being has ever done in the history of the world. They are waiting for the world to understand who this Jesus is. And when he sits with that donkey and that foal, that colt, and begins to move into Jerusalem, he is announcing, I am the one that Zechariah talked about over 500 years ago. He is announcing, I am the prophesied king. Now I want to leave this verse up for a minute, because there are some things in here that we need to understand. Because whenever someone quotes in the Bible the first line of a verse, it is intended that the people around would remember and know the rest of what came after that. And so for us, we hear that and we're like, that's awesome. But in their mind, they would have heard this whole verse. In fact, probably this whole section of Zechariah. And in the midst of that, it reminds us of the kind of king that is coming. It tells us that he is righteous, that he is a good and godly king. Who is right with God and perfect in every way. That he is a king that has no form of sin within him. He is righteous and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey. When they see him coming in, they begin to shout Hosanna to him. I don't know if you know this or not, but the reality is that Hosanna was a word that had an actual meaning. Like today, if you just say, it's one of those words that we use in church, we talk about in church, we sing sometimes. In fact, the uh, the song we're going to sing at response time is Hosanna. And we're like, yeah, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means Hosanna. That's what it means, right? But the, fa- the phrase itself, the actual word itself means save and save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Savior. 
is this place where they are announcing that the God who loves them has sent his Savior to enter into their place. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Do we have that up there? I think we, there he is. Have the kind of the background of this. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. For the house of the Lord we bless you. So when they're traveling down the street and Jesus is riding on this donkey with the colt and he is proclaiming who he is through that action, the people around us are saying, Lord, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That prophecy in Zechariah reminds us that he is our Savior, that he is righteous, that he is gentle, that he comes humbly and gentle and meek. His coronation would not be one of pomp and circumstance. It would not be one where ornamental dress was worn or splendor and pageantry were there. He would come instead surrounded by lowly Galileans on a pilgrimage into a city riding a donkey with a colt. That his way up was down. We talked a lot about this in the series on Philippians, but it is so true that our day needs a heavy dose of the humility of Jesus Christ. Not seeking our own gain, not seeking our own privilege, not seeking our own place, not seeking our own power, not seeking our own place to sit among those that are great, but listening for, humbling ourselves and serving the people around us. Jesus could have called an angel army in to accompany him into the town. He could have declared who he was with flourishes and miracles, but instead he comes in a humble, gentle way, riding on a donkey. Which, by the way, was a sign of peace. Luke 19, when it's describing the triumphal entry, it describes that not only did they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, but they're saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I can't help, but when I hear that phrase, think of the phrase in Luke chapter 2, right? When Jesus is born. Glory in the highest, peace on earth, to whom his favor dwells. Another reminder of humility in which Jesus came in the manger. One last thing from that prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah actually, verse chapter 9, verse 10, says that this is what will happen. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. And then it tells us his dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. That this isn't a local God, a local Lord. This God is global and complete. He is our Savior. He is gentle. He is peaceful. He is the Messiah, the Son of David. He is compassionate. Luke 19 says that when he came into the city, he wept over. It's only one of two times the Bible describes Jesus weeping. One is when his friend Lazarus is dead and he goes and he is there and he weeps. And the second is as he's entering the city, 
where he will give his life. He weeps over the condition of what is happening there. He's prophetic. He's holy. He's authoritative. We'll talk about the holiness a little bit more in just a moment. He's authoritative over the temple. It tells us that he goes in and throws out the people that are desecrating the temple. He's authoritative over disease. It tells us just in a quick thing, he's healing people of disease. People are coming to him, he's healing them. He's authoritative over all of us. And even in the fig tree illustration, he is authoritative over creation. And we are reminded when we see this triumphal entry that this is the way that Jesus declares who he is. And it is on a donkey riding into a city where he will give his life to rescue sinners and will be crucified as king of the Jews. But one day he will not come riding on a donkey but on a horse and he will come to rule all sinners and he will be crowned not as king of the Jews but as king of kings and lord of lords. When you get this picture of who Jesus is, the defined, prophesied, righteous Savior who is gentle and peaceful and has global reach, who is the Messiah and compassionate, who is a prophet and holy, who has authority over all things and is coming again, our role in the midst of that is simply to praise the King, to give glory and honor unto Him. The second thing this passage tells us that we need to do is not only do we need to praise the king, but we need to join the mission. A couple of places you see this in this passage from the story that we read. And the first comes when he goes into the temple. Now, there's a prophecy in Malachi, by the way, that that gives us what is happening here. It says that when the one that comes will come, that he will clean out the temple, he will purify it, and he will make it right to be able to be used again. Now, we know that this is just a foreshadowing on this day of him cleansing the temple of what will come when the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom as he makes a sacrifice once and for all, for all people, in order to be able to enter into God's kingdom who are willing to accept that. But it gives us the reason that he's there turning over tables. It's because those that are selling and buying. And it wasn't necessarily against the law for them to have things for people to be able to sacrifice. If weary travelers weren't able to travel with what they needed to bring to a sacrifice on the week of Passover, that was kind of allowed. But what it was is where they were doing it and how they were using it to become rich. So they were taking advantage specifically where this is set up in the court of Gentiles, the only place that foreigners, people that weren't of Jewish descent or Jewish people, were able to come and to worship the one true God. And in the midst of that, they were selling what was needed for sacrifice at exorbitantly high rates. They were taking advantage of what was happening. And Jesus comes in and he throws it over and he quotes what is really from Jeremiah that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of thieves. 
But the reality is this goes back further than even Jeremiah. There's a passage in Isaiah where in Isaiah he says that not only will I have this place, he talks about the fact that the foreigners will come from all over, that people will come that are not part of our Jewish community, that are not part of the covenant people, but they will be interested and they will want to come to worship and they will want to come to join. And he says in there, I will make my house a house of prayer for all nations. And what Jesus is upset is, as he's walking into the city where he is coming to give a sacrifice, he understands that his sacrifice is to be given, not just for the Jewish people that are there, but for those on the outside that need a Savior as well. And for all of us in this room that are not of Jewish descent, we can be thankful that we have a God. Who wants to extend the grace that he showed through Jesus Christ to all nations. Amen. And for us to ever think that it is somehow tied to a particular nation or a particular race or a particular socioeconomic status is to deny the mission and the power and the glory of God. He basically is saying, remember, I am coming. I am the king. I am the Messiah. But I'm coming not for a small agenda. I'm coming to save the world. That we must be open to joining him in that mission of taking the gospel to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That we must be willing to walk across the street or go around the world. That we must be willing to do what he has called us to do, to live our lives. He also, at the end of this passage, talks about this tree that is not bearing the fruit. And it is a visual representation of those of us that have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, that are claiming to walk with him. And there is nothing to show in our lives. No internal transformation. We think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That that is not the characteristic that drives our lives, but also the fruit that comes to be shown on the outside. And that is that we are out aggressively talking to people about becoming followers of Jesus Christ, discipling them into what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ and training them to go and do the same, that we are disciples, multiplying disciples. Jesus is saying that if you're going to be part of what you've called me to be, if you're going to be part of what I've been called by God to do, if you're going to be part of this, join me in the mission of taking the gospel to the nations, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your co-workers, and making disciples that make disciples in the place around us. We can't forget. And I know every year at this time we talk about this, but it's true. The fickleness of the crowd We can't forget that many of these same people that are laying their coats down, that are putting palm trees on the ground, that are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will a few days later be standing in a court square saying, crucify him. And so we must understand that just because we know how to say the right things on a certain occasion when it's good and expeditious to say so, doesn't mean that it is That our lives have been transformed by the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we need to see fruit being born from our lives. Yes, internal attitudes that make us more and more like the Christ that we serve. But also external evidence of our following of Jesus. 
And so Jesus, in declaring who he is, he is continuing this call from the people around him to follow him. It's interesting that the last two words before the triumphal entry is that those men that were saved, that were washed of their blindness, followed him. Everything about them went with him. As a church, as individuals, are we truly seeing the fruit that God wants from our lives. I've used this phrase a lot when I was at Union studying uh, to be a pastor in college. Uh, I had a professor named Dr. Paul Jackson, and Dr. Jackson used to always say, one of the most quoted verses in Scripture is, Judge not lest you be judged. He said, and it is not our responsibility to judge the eternal souls of people, that is God's. He said, but it is our responsibility to be fruit inspectors. And ask the question whether or not the fruit that is being produced in the life of an individual is the fruit of someone who has been saved by Jesus. Radically transformed. And the last thing we see, and then we're done today, is not only are we called to praise the King, and not only are we called to join the mission, we are called to pray big prayers. I mean, big prayers. At the end of this passage, the disciples are in awe of the fact that he basically said to a tree, you're done, and the tree was done. You want to know how impressive that is? Go try that this afternoon. Just declare to a tree that you're done and watch what happens. It will stare at you. But he says it, and it withers. And then he turns to them and he says, If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what's done to this fig tree, but you can tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will be done. Now there, Jesus here, I I don't think, I don't mean this in any way limiting the power of God. God can do absolutely anything he wants to do. But he is saying to them, let no task be too small for you to pray that God would move in and among it. I want to tell you a couple of things this is not. This is not name it and claim it. You want a Ferrari, pray for a Ferrari, and it's there. All right? Now, most of us in this room would laugh at that. Like, okay. But there are things in our lives that are like, God, we really need this. And if you would give me this, it would be great. And we expect God to answer that. We expect God to give us what we want. That's not what is in mind here. What's in mind here, and this we get this from the context of understanding it, is that when it comes to God's kingdom and what he is able to do through a group of people, there is no prayer that is too big. Now, here's how we know that. Because this is another one of those places, we've talked about this a lot, where I wish there was a southern translation of this. Because this isn't you singular. And most of you, when you read this, read that as you singular. If you say to that mountain, jump into the ocean, it will move. But it's not you singular. It is y'all. Right? If y'all would pray for this to happen, then God would do it. Whatever it says at the end of that, whatever you believe, that's y'all believe, Y'all will receive when y'all ask for it in prayer. 
The point is, when God's people committed to God's plan, believing in God's power, come before Him and ask Him of something for God's kingdom and the spread of it and the renown of God's name, there is no prayer that is too small or that is too big to ask. That we come boldly before the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we as a church pray boldly, God move here and now. And if there is ever a check in your spirit like, well, God wouldn't do that here. That is not from the Lord. Can I tell you that? If there is ever, well, God would never do that here. Or God could never see that happen. Now, unless you're talking about something that's anti biblical or anti-God's character, if you're just talking about that's too big for God to do here, that is not from the Lord telling you to stop that. That's from the enemy of our souls. And over the last almost 40 days now, we're in the last week. It's the beginning of the end, right? Of this last week of seeking God and praying. Now, I hope it's not the beginning of the end of us seeking God and praying. I hope it's the beginning of the end of the beginning of that. Well, this is just the starting point for us to daily seek the Lord, daily go after Him, daily ask Him. I hope it's not the end of you fasting for all time, like that you're setting aside some days or some thoughts or some times when we as a church family will talk about that more, but you individually are fasting for what God is doing in your life or going to do. But when we, y'all, get together and we pray for God's kingdom, for God's work to happen, There is no prayer that is too big for us to pray. And if it doesn't scare you, it is definitely not big enough. I'm just saying it. If you're comfortable with what God... If you right now are comfortable and would be comfortable with whatever God is going to give you based on your latest prayers, then you're not praying big enough. Like we as a church ought to be praying praying prayers that are asking the question... I don't have a clue what we would do if God showed up in that way, but we'll figure it out with him. It ought to make us nervous. It ought to make us scared. It ought to make us think like we can't do this on our own because if it's something we can manufacture, it is not of God. The point that Jesus is making here to his disciples who are about to be within a week in a place where they're going to have to walk through two days of trying to figure out what has happened to their king, to their Messiah, who just a few days ago is riding on a donkey declaring to the world that he is the king come to set everything right, is now laid in a tomb. And in those days, he's saying, don't be afraid to ask for what you think is impossible. Because though even he had, even though he had told them again and again, and if you read through the scriptures, you can talk about the disciples or the people that just don't get it. He had told them again and again and again that, hey, and he didn't say it directly, but the idea was behind everything. Like in three days, I'll be risen from the dead. Don't worry about it. I'm going to die, but you know, it's going to fall to the ground. It's going to die. Then it'll come back to life. Even though that's there, we know from what happens, they didn't have a clue what Jesus was going to do on Sunday. And he's telling them nothing is impossible. For God. How big are your prayers? And that's okay for your family. But again, it's not about comfort and material stuff. How big are your fans and prayers for your family for what God's going to do in and through it? How big are your prayers for how God can use you? 
And if God were to give you everything you prayed for in the last week, would it make you uncomfortable at all? Or would you be perfectly fine with what it is? When's the last time you prayed a big prayer about the kingdom of God and the spread of his fame? When's the last time as a church we collectively did that? I'm praying for God to do things that would blow us away. I'm praying for him to do more than we can ask or imagine. I am praying that God would send his spirit and do something in this place that would astound us in this moment. I'm praying for God to show up and show out for the sake of his name and the spread of his kingdom. And if y'all, we, believing, ask God, nothing is too big. Jesus entered the city as the announced king. He called people to join him in the mission that would end in the cross and a resurrection. And he told them to boldly pray for God to move. This week, as we relive the final week of Jesus' life, as we replay that, May we be a people who praise him for who he is. For what he has already done and what he is going to do in our lives. May we be a people who join him in sharing the mission of expanding those that are coming into the kingdom. And may we be a people who are praying big prayers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are... The always king. The one who is and was and is to come. And Lord, as we are in the midst of this story that is playing out right now, that's Lord, I hope we are building to that moment when you are going to split the sky and come again. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding of what it means to be faithful here and now. Lord, we pray for a movement that can only be explained by you in this place among us. Not just for us, Lord, although we know that if you move in and through our lives, that it will be a blessing beyond what we can imagine. Lord, we are praying so that your name may be made great and so that your kingdom may be expanded. Lord, I pray if there are those in this room who do not know you as their Savior, of those watching online, listening to this, Lord. I pray. If there are those that are listening, watching, here, that do not know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that you would forever and eternally change their lives. And we pray, Lord, most of all, your name is the name that is lifted high in this place and in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.